Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. This is not our passage this morning, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 says, For I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, this is the words of Paul to the church in Corinth. I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, during the Lenten season, what we typically would do is we would do a sermon series that was kind of oriented of journeying toward the cross, of how do we sort of walk through the last week or the last few moments of Jesus's life that led to the cross. That's what we normally would do in the Lenten season. Uh, but this year, instead of journeying to the cross, we're going to go right to the cross and we're going to spend some time to try to discover the meaning of the cross uh, it is not an exaggeration to say uh, that at the center of Christian faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, the cross is a symbol uh, that marks Christian churches all over the world. Uh, it is truly a symbol that is a universal language. Um, and so just as the cross has become so ubiquitous in our world and in our culture, uh, sometimes we go with the assumption that we know what it means. And so we're going to ask the question of what does this mean? What does the cross mean? Now I want to be clear right at the outset of this series, right at the beginning, that when I say cross or the cross, uh, I'm not just talking about the object of the cross. Uh, I'm actually talking about the event that took place at the cross. Uh, so I'm not just referring to the object. I'm referring to the event that took place. That is Jesus's death on the cross. And when I mention the cross, the resurrection is assumed and implied. That is, you cannot so easily talk about them as different things. They, they go together. They are distinct, but they go together. You can't separate them. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, without Easter, <laughs> uh, you have just a guy who was killed by the Roman Empire, and there's nothing spectacular about that. Uh, because the ancient Roman Empire were quite experts at killing. Uh, and so I don't want you to think that I'm overlooking the resurrection, even though we're turning all of our attention to the event and the meaning of what took place when Jesus died on the cross. Because what the resurrection does is it verifies and it vindicates all that was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend some time at the cross exploring the meaning, uh, because if God became flesh and dwelt among us, and then died on a Roman cross, that is significant. I mean, just pause a moment at these claims. First of all, that God became flesh. The creator of the universe took on human form. And then that God, rather than ruling from all the crowns uh, of, the, the, of the best kind of temples and, and castles the earth had to offer, that God dies on a Roman cross at the hands of an empire. Uh, if in fact this is the case, as Christians claim, 
then this matters. This historical event means something. And I would say that it's important to realize that it can't mean just one thing. Some, some, an, an event that significant, that important, cannot mean just one thing. Uh, if, in fact, this is the case, then there certainly are multiple layers of meaning to an event of this significance. In fact, I would submit to you that learning to see and to understand the cross in a multitude of ways broadens and deepens our faith. On the other hand, if we have only one way of seeing and understanding the cross, our faith becomes anemic. We need to know, we need to look at the cross and have a whole multitude of meanings available to us, a ways of thinking about this so that our faith is deep, our faith is broad, and it's not anemic as though we just assume this means one thing. So if I could be so bold, right here at the beginning of the message, part of the problem of the modern evangelical church is that the cross has been reduced to mean only one thing. And most of the time when the modern evangelical church talks about the cross, they often talk about it in transactional terms, right? God did this, or Jesus did this, so that God could do that. Now you need to do that, and God's obligated to do this, and you have this whole transaction, right? So what I want to offer to us is that this, the cross, the events that took place on the cross, mean more than one thing, and we're going to explore that over, uh, uh, throughout Lent and including up to Easter Sunday. Uh, so that's the plan. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the meaning of the cross. So this, that's what this series is all about, and we're going to discover that the cross is at least all of these things, is at least all of these things. It is the enduring model of discipleship, and it is the coronation of the king. It is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. It is the beauty that saves the world. It is the humiliation of the principalities and powers. And on Easter Sunday, it is the death that conquers death. Amen. And today, we're going to talk about how the cross is the point of eternal forgiveness. The cross is the point of eternal forgiveness. If you were to ask most Christians what the cross is all about, most of them would talk about forgiveness in some form or fashion. Forgiveness is a great place to start our exploration on the meaning of the cross. So I invite you to churn or click to Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 33. Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 33, says this. When they came to a place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, much has been made about words, the words that Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. And every one of those phrases and sayings are important. They carry weight. But I would say that perhaps the most important words of Jesus from the cross 
are the, is the announcement of forgiveness. The words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To allow us to feel the full weight of these words, I want to recount the moments prior to this announcement of forgiveness from the cross. Uh, The festival of Passover was happening in Jerusalem, and we know all about the Passover from our series in Exodus. Uh, So Jesus gathers his disciples for the Passover meal. Remember, the Passover meal is the meal that remembers or looks back uh, to the Passover event uh, at the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery. And so at this Passover meal in Jerusalem, this memorial meal, in those moments at the table, Jesus does the very thing that we now reenact every single Sunday. Jesus took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Each time you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I would imagine that the disciples in that moment had started to figure out that something might be going on. That there's something, that they are in proximity to someone and something really, really important. That this is a significant moment in history. I think they probably had a sense that something was going on, but they had no idea what was about to take place. And so, having a sense that they were in proximity to something and someone important, you know what the disciples do? They start jockeying for position. And they start talking to Jesus about who is going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And so in proximity to something and someone important, they start jockeying for position. (laughs) You and I would never do anything like that. (laughs) After supper, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And while there, he told his disciples... Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So Jesus goes and he off on his own. He prays a little while. He returns and finds that his disciples have fallen asleep. You never do that. (laughs) He woke them up and he repeated the instruction. Pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus by the next morning, was about to be arrested and then crucified. And I've often wondered, what is the temptation that the disciples were supposed to avoid? Twice, Jesus says, pray so that you don't fall into temptation. But after that, there, like things start to move so quickly. Before they know it, before we know it, in the narrative, Jesus is hanging on a cross, crucified, and saying, it is finished. Whoa. And so exactly what is it that they were supposed to pray and the temptation that they were supposed to avoid? I wonder, and this is speculation on my part, but I wonder if it was the temptation to get swept up in the thinking of the mob or the crowd. Because in just a few hours from that moment, when Jesus says, pray that you don't fall into temptation, in just a few hours, it will be the crowds who are, are, who are chanting, crucify him. 
Give us, this, give us this criminal in exchange for an innocent man and let's kill the innocent one, right? Turns out that crowds or mobs don't often have the best judgment. And it's the crowds that will demand that Jesus be crucified. So perhaps it was the temptation to avoid crowd thinking. It could also be the temptation to completely miss what was about to transpire. I mean, this was God-made flesh, innocent and free of guilt, and yet who he would become subject to beating, flogging, jeering, mocking before being hung on a cross to die. And so perhaps it was simply the temptation, don't fall asleep to what's happening around you. Perhaps it was the temptation... Or perhaps it was that they wouldn't fall into the temptation of fighting back and using violence. I mean, Jesus perhaps was asking that his disciples pray and be kept from the temptation to employ violence to bring about their own desired outcome. It could have been any one of those. But Jesus asks his disciples to pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Shortly after this, While still in the garden, Jesus was arrested. But it turns out the authorities know where Jesus is because one of his own disciples had betrayed him. Judas told the authorities where to find Jesus in exchange for money. Pray so that you don't fall into temptation. But shortly after, Jesus is arrested because one of his own had betrayed him in exchange for money. Another disciple defended him by wielding a sword and cutting off the soldier's ear. But Jesus rebukes this disciple, heals the soldier that was wounded, and says, Lay down your sword. For those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Once Jesus was arrested, many of his disciples, in fact, just fled. In a moment, they abandoned the cause of Christ because clearly Jesus was no different than any of the other many revolutionaries who has now been arrested by the Roman government and was no doubt headed toward their death. And so in a moment, when the movement fell apart, the disciples fled. Even one of the the disciples um, associated with Jesus denies ever knowing him. And this all happens in just a matter of hours. Pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus is then brought before Pilate where the crowd demands that he be crucified. He was beaten, flogged, mocked, jeered at, and humiliated. And he now hangs from the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I don't want us to miss the significance of this. Jesus forgives all the pain inflicted upon him, all the hurt that he had experienced in just a few hours, and all the injustice. And he says, Father, forgive them. You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is not allowing the offense to define the entire relationship. And it is way harder than you think. (laughs) It is way harder than you think. True, authentic, 
like God breathed forgiveness is when we are hurt. We have an offense done against us, an injustice, and it is real and it needs to be named and it needs to be forgiven. But forgiveness is saying, I am not going to allow that hurt, that pain, that offense to define the entire relationship. That I'm willing to move forward with this relationship, but not allow that to define it. Okay? And it's way harder than it seems. Let me add some nuance here, right? Forgiveness does not mean that we re-enter ourselves into a place of potential harm against abusers. Okay? So, sometimes forgiveness is, let's forgive and seek reconciliation. Sometimes forgiveness is, I'm, not, I'm going to forgive you, release the pain that you caused, and then not allow it to define the relationship as in, I can wish you well, but I'm drawing a boundary. You with me? Okay. Sometimes forgiveness, when we talk about it in like really radical gospel-centered terms, we misunderstand it as sort of befriending an abuser, and it is not that. Okay. But Jesus on the cross, having been, having been subject to all of this injustice and pain and hurt, offers, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Um, this whole part about they don't know what they're doing, if you're anything like me, you sometimes have been just a little bit offended by that. Like, maybe the disciples, maybe the Romans, maybe me, were just not very sharp, Right? Like, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. Like, they were a little bit disconnected from it all. And, and so it used to be like, I kind of used to see it as those involved in the situation were really missing the boat and not very sharp. But I've come to see it in this way. Sometimes any one of us are very easily trapped into thinking like the crowd, being too captured by money, using violence, whether physical or otherwise, to promote or to protect our particular group. And so it's like all the things that the disciples sort of fell victim to, it wasn't like, oh, they weren't very sharp, they didn't know what they were doing. It was, now I see it as any one of us can so easily get caught up in these things and not have any idea. And not even realize what we're doing. So I now see these words of they don't know what they're doing as, and I want you to hear this, as words of compassion from an all-knowing Savior whose heart breaks as his disciples and others are caught in harmful narratives about how life works. I see it now as words of compassion from an all-knowing Savior whose heart breaks as his disciples are caught in harmful narratives about how life works. And so it's, Father, forgive them, for they don't even realize the harmful narratives they're caught up in, to which I would recognize that I could be just as easily in that group. And maybe you could too. And so there's the... Pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. What is the temptation? But then there's also this, Father, forgive them. Who is them? Is it the crowd who together demand the death of an innocent man? 
Is it the Roman soldiers who carry out a state-sponsored death by nailing him to the cross? Or is it is the them, the disciples, who collectively in the last few hours have betrayed him, abandoned him, denied his name, and employed violence to defend his cause? Who is the them? I think the answer, I believe, is all of the above. <laughs> right? That on the cross, and this is what I want you to see this morning, on the cross, Jesus absorbs the sin of humanity as embodied by the Romans and the crowd and the disciples, etc. That what you have at the cross is this picture, this cosmic picture of the sin of humanity. And sometimes the sin is being carried out by those who are the disciples of Christ. Sometimes the sin is being carried out by the crowd. Other times the sin is being carried out by the Romans. And yet all of it, all of it is forgiven in Christ's words at the cross. And so Jesus, in this moment, absorbs the sin of humanity. You could say this, he takes on the sin of humanity. You could say this, Christ becomes victim of all the sin of humanity, and he responds, Father, forgive them. Because all of them can so easily be caught up in narratives that are harmful, and they don't even know it. Whoa. Church, at the cross is where the sin of the world is forgiven. And not just the sins of that moment. Not just the sins of that moment. Sins for, it, the cross offers to us forgiveness of sins past and forgiveness of sins that were yet to come. And all of it happens on the cross. And this is why any who will call on the name of Jesus in confession and repentance are forgiven and reconciled to God. Amen. Because the cross is the eternal point of forgiveness. And this is orthodox Christianity. If we don't believe that the cross is the eternal moment of the forgiveness of God toward humanity, then no one in this sanctuary today has any reason to call upon the name of Jesus for forgiveness. The very reason we call upon the name of Jesus for forgiveness is that we believe as Christians that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself when he became victim of sin, took on sin, absorbed all the sin of humanity, and then responded with forgiveness. I thought more people in the house would say amen to that. And so it is the eternal moment of forgiveness and experiencing forgiveness of sin. And reconciliation with God is what theologians have come to call salvation. Experiencing forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God is what theologians have called salvation. We are saved by the forgiveness of God in Christ on the cross and the reconciliation of God. Amen. Now, one time, someone asked theologian Karl Barth. They asked him the famous question, when were you saved? It's a good question. Maybe you've asked someone that. Maybe you've been asked that yourself. When were you saved? Not wanting to answer too quickly, Karl Barth paused 
and then replied, 33 AD. That one's a slow burn, but it's so good, right? (laughs) Hey, when were you saved? 33 AD. Karl Barth, in that moment and with that response, is identifying the cross as the eternal moment of forgiveness. The eternal moment of forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, this is chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Which is to say, church, on the cross, God was not being appeased. God was suffering the sin of the world and responding with forgiveness, thereby reconciling the world to himself. Amen. That is some good preaching. (laughs) And really good theology. But I got to go to work tomorrow. And so what difference does that make? What difference does it make in my life today, tomorrow, throughout the week, when I'm going about my stuff, just trying to live life, right? Great question. Oftentimes, we don't take the time to think about the larger things of life, right? Often, we just kind of get caught in a circle of, I just got to get done what I got to get done. I got the kids, I got to get the kids to where they got to go, and I got to remember to pick them up at the right time and all that kind of stuff, right? And I got to do all these things, and we, we don't really pause to consider the larger things of life, or the beauty of it all, or what it all means. So what does this mean for each of us? Well, we tend to have this picture um, that our brokenness before God keeps us from God. But if we recognize the cross as the eternal moment of forgiveness, that God in Christ is taking sin upon himself, absorbing sin and responding with forgiveness, what it means for you is our sin, your sin, does not keep you from God. That the divine posture towards you is one of open arms and embrace. Right? This is why theology is so important. Because how we understand the cross informs our understanding of God's character. Is God angry and needs Jesus to appease anger? Or is that what's happening on the cross? Is God angry and God needs Jesus to appease his anger? Or is God in Christ on the on suffering on the cross and reconciling the world to himself? Is God being appeased on the cross or is God suffering in Christ? I think God is co-suffering with us in Christ on the cross. Which is why we can say to someone and all of us, as we have been through a two-year Lent, <laughs> where we have experienced so much loss, and every, like things in culture are going haywire, and it just feels like things are just about to come unraveled, and we are suffering, we can say with great confidence that God knows what it is to suffer.
Because God, in Christ, was suffering on the cross. He was not simply being appeased. He was suffering on the cross. Reconciling the world to himself and responding in forgiveness. When we see that the cross is the point of eternal forgiveness, we see that God's posture toward humanity is one of love and embrace. And so since the cross is the eternal point of forgiveness, I'm just going to push this a little bit farther, right? If we, if we in fact, affirm the cross is the eternal point of forgiveness, that means your sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. Your sins are forgiven. The work has been done. Forgiveness has been offered. All we have to do, all that is left to do, is respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as I already mentioned, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then right after that, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you catch it? God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. This, is, this work is done. It is completed. How, what should we do, Paul? Be reconciled, right? It's like Paul is saying, you are reconciled. Now be reconciled. The hand has been brought out. It's reaching out. Forgiveness has been offered. All we must do is respond. You are reconciled. Forgiveness has been offered and you are not estranged from God. And so Paul says, therefore then be reconciled. Our response is to accept God's forgiveness and enter into life with God through confession and repentance. Uh, Pastor Brian Zond, I want to get this right. I didn't write it down, but he says something very close to this or akin to this. He says, we don't come to God through apathy, but through honesty. Therefore, we confess. Right? The fact that the work is done, that forgiveness has been offered, does not lead us simply to apathy. Oh, isn't that great? But rather, it leads us to, to honesty and say, these are, the, these are the parts of my life that are broken, where I need forgiveness, where I have not participated in God's will or God's best or participated in God's shalom for the world, but rather I have I have fallen short and I need forgiveness. But thanks be to God that forgiveness has already been offered in Christ on the cross. And so all I must do is confess and return to him. It is, it is in fact, the, the reality that the cross is the point of eternal forgiveness that we can't go too far from God. <laughs> That whenever we mess up or whenever we ignore God or whenever we just kind of go about our lives and yet whenever we just churn around, God is there and ready to receive us. And it's because God has already reconciled the world to himself in Christ. It, the work has already been done. And so our, our role simply is then to walk in the ways that Jesus has shown us to walk with confession and repentance and then walk with the Spirit as our guide. Amen? And that's part of what Lent is all about. The, the season of Lent is, is not just a time uh, for Christians to be sad. 
<laughs> it's a time for Christians to recognize the ways in which we have participated in brokenness and sin in the world, be honest about that, and then celebrate God's forgiveness and new life that's available to us in Christ uh, through resurrection at Easter. And so it's this, it's this moment, this season, where we lament the things that are wrong, we're honest about those things, we're honest about our own role in those things, and then it allows the light of resurrection and new life in Christ to shine all the brighter. Amen? Amen. Well, let me um, say a word of prayer and I'll lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thankful for your work on the cross. Thankful, God, that you saw fit to reconcile the world to yourself. Thankful, God, that on the cross you were suffering. And so you know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to be betrayed. You know what it is to experience injustice of any and all kinds. And you have shown us forgiveness. And it serves not just as a model for us, but it also serves as a transformative thing in our lives that we now are forgiven. Sins past, sins future. And so God, help each and every one of us to, to realize that this morning, to respond in confession, to respond by asking forgiveness and coming to you where you are not far away. So God, thank you for your work that was accomplished on the cross. Be with us over these next few weeks as we discover the meaning of the cross. Um, God, I just pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would inspire our hearts, that we might fully come to see uh, the, the depth of meaning uh, behind your work on the cross. We give you thanks and we give you praise. Be with us now as we gather around the table. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.